Take your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6 this evening. I'm going to begin a four-lesson series on the Beginner's Guidebook for Advanced Discipleship. The Beginner's Guidebook for Advanced Discipleship. Luke chapter 6, all of the sermons will be preached out of this chapter. And there is essentially, as I read or as I can find, four different attitudes in which our Savior addresses in this uh, uh, passage of Scripture. Many would consider this uh, a second rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, many would just consider it Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. I probably would find myself in that category. Uh, the difference being uh, Matthew, the other collection of it, Matthew 5, uh, that one says the Lord preached it on a mountain. This one says He preached it on a plain. I will say, however, earlier in Luke it says He was in a mountain praying, and the word plain means a plain in mountainous area. So I am inclined to believe that it is, in fact, the same sermon. Regardless... You ever noticed in Christianity there's a lot of things that are argued about that really aren't worth arguing about? That's one of them right there. And so it doesn't really matter whether this is the first version or the second version. It doesn't matter if this is the sequel or the prequel. It really doesn't matter, but they are both equal, okay? And we can use one to explain the other because they say and teach on the same subject matter. So we will do that in this study. Luke chapter 6 I'll start reading in verse 19, but honestly, uh, or verse 12, but honestly, um, that's not where we're going to really study. I do want you to see, though, who is involved as our Lord is teaching, okay? So we'll start reading in Luke chapter 6, verse number 12. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. See, there's Luke 6 saying it's in a mountain. And continued all night in prayer with, uh, to God. Verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, he's my favorite. James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus. And Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples. Now, the word disciples there is not referring to the same group of men he just called. In fact, it's actually referring to the large gathering that had now decided to follow him. And so you have really two groups that have uh, been called disciples. You have the multitude of disciples, and then you have what we would recognize as like the proper disciples, the twelve that were just listed off. The Bible says in verse 17, "...and the company of the disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him..." Notice this and to be healed of their diseases. What are their main two purposes for being there? To hear and to be healed. Okay? Verse number 18, the Bible goes on to say, And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. 
And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. And you have this great collection of people now. As the Lord went up into the mountain to pray, he prayed, and I believe he was praying about the men whom he would select. I don't think it was any surprise to Jesus whom he would select, but I believe he was praying for them, just like he prays for you and me. He prays that we would be strong in the moment of temptation. He prays for us that we would understand by faith the things that He is doing in our life. And I believe that was kind of what Jesus would be praying about for His disciples. But you have this large gathering of people and you have the twelve disciples whom Jesus now has selected out and He called them apostles. Disciples are one who follows. Apostles are one who sent. So there's a difference there. These men are disciples until the moment when Christ leaves the earth, and now they become apostles. He sent them to help people, to do many things, even as far as establishing the local New Testament church as we know it. So you have these two groups, the disciples proper and the disciples in general. Verse number 20, And he lifted uh, lifted up his eyes on his disciples. This is the first lesson our Lord teaches His disciples. Now, your, your congregation is this. Your twelve, you could call them the front row guys, okay? You have your twelve front row, the proper disciples, and then you have the multitude. And He's speaking to them all. This is why I call it the beginner's guide to advanced discipleship, because He's addressing anybody who would be His disciple. Verse number 20. He said unto his disciples, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Oh, that's that's exciting stuff there, Jesus. Pour on some more of that hard truth. Amen, brother. How many amens do you think Jesus got when he said that? It's like when a preacher preaches on tithing. You don't get as many then. And, and, And Jesus says, Blessed be the poor... Verse number 20, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, I'm sure Peter and John, they all got together like, I'm rather new at this whole discipleship thing. Maybe there's some guys in the back. Boy, that's pretty tough. It can only get better from here because he started out pretty low. Verse number 21. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now. For ye shall laugh. That's that's tough. That is not what I would consider or what I would term as the joy of the Lord. But he says, blessed are you when you hunger now. Blessed are you when you weep. That's tough. May I remind you. This is the first sermon Jesus ever preaches to His disciples. If I gave you the opportunity to come to preach to the teenagers, what would be your first sermon? Eh, It'd probably be something uh, helpful, something instructive. Jesus' first sermon started out like this. When you're poor, it's a good thing. When you hunger, it's good. When you weep, That's the the type of disciple that I'm looking for. He goes on to say, verse 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, 
And when they shall separate you from, uh, you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. Okay, what do you think they're thinking now? After the incredibly difficult truth that Jesus has just delivered. Hey guys, I know you see all these miracles. I know you're, you're thinking that I can just fix all your problems. But for every problem I fix in your life, this is essentially what he's saying. For every problem I fix, there's going to be another one created the more you choose to follow me. But when that happens, I want you to be happy about it. When people hate you, and they post bad things on Facebook about you, and you become the person that everybody runs away from, when you pull up next to them at the stoplight, and you're honking, and you're waving, and they're just ignoring you, acting like they're listening to something spiritual, when you know, when you know preaching does not have that much base, When, when people hate you, here's what I want you to do, disciples. If you're going to be, be my disciple, here's what I need you to do. Be happy when life is terrible. Look, I'm not, I'm not removing the context from Scripture here. This is the life of a disciple. That's why I say it's the beginner's handbook for advanced discipleship. Because the, the concepts are rather simple. The living it out is rather advanced. He goes on to say, Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger... Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. The first lesson that Jesus teaches His disciples is this. What is your attitude going to be like in bad circumstances? Amen. Heavenly Father, please help us to now, I ask, Lord, allow me the privilege of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life as I preach Your Word. Father, I pray that I would be completely submissive to You in every way as this tremendously difficult sermon passage is preached. Lord, You delivered it in a way that certainly I could never do justice, but I pray, Lord, You give me a little bit of unction so that I might be able to preach tonight. Lord, not only help me, but help the hearer because if I speak truth and I preach truth and yet the hearer thinks about many other things and is not focused on what your spirit is doing in their life, it will all have been in vain. So, Father, I pray, arrest the attention of every person in this room. Captivate this audience to the Word of God so that it might be impactful in changing lives this evening. I ask, Lord, in your Son's precious name, Amen. What is your definition of a happy Christian life. You see, I was reading an article by Christianity Today, and it was in response to an article by, Today, uh, or by Time magazine, 
And they said that 17% of Christians surveyed said they considered themselves as part of a prosperity gospel preaching church. 17%. 61% believe that God wants them to be prosperous. 31%, which is a far higher percentage than every single Pentecostal in America, agreed that if you give God your money, He will bless you in terms of money. Here's a question, and this is somewhat removed from the sermon material tonight. Would you continue to tithe if you knew God was never going to give it back? You say, Brother Andrew, you're out of stewardship month. I need you to move on. You're right. It's not stewardship. It's just practical obedience. What is your definition of a happy Christian life? What we have to do is we have to put ourselves in the shoes of these believers as they're listening to Jesus teach. You want to know one of the main reasons they're out there listening to Jesus in the first place? is because they are Jewish and they have more pride than anyone. You see, I used to think Americans had pride until our athletes started taking knees when the national anthem was sung. I used to think that Americans had pride until people were picketing and, and uh, 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 rioting at soldiers' funerals. I used to think we had pride, but nobody is more proud to be the nation that they are than the Jews. And they're so proud and they remember their great heritage and yet at the moment of this passage, they are in bondage to Rome. They were almost, in, in, in some sense, so proud that they were blind. Jesus taught a simple passage about being free and their first response was this, but we're Jewish, we've never been in bondage to any man. Wait a minute. Ask Daniel if he was ever in bondage. He spent a lot of time in bondage, actually. You see, they were so proud it was their fault. And they were listening to Jesus in hopes that He might be the one who would deliver them. Oh, He came to deliver them all right, but not the way that they were hoping. They came to set them free from their sins, not set them free from political tyranny. They were proud of their heritage. And they remember all the promises that God had made to Abraham. That if, if, if they would just follow after God, He would bless them. And in their mind, I'm sure that they began to recount all the men that, that built their great heritage. Men like Abraham. Men like Joseph. Men like Moses. And one thing that most of these men have in common is God blessed them so they had great stuff. They had a lot of possessions. Abraham was a wealthy man. So much so that just him and his servants went and defeated some nations. Amen. Look, their perception now has become over the course of time that when you follow God, He will immediately give you wealth. He will immediately give you health. And, and that is not such a crazy concept, because remember when Job fell into all of his dilemmas? You know what his friends came and said? Hey, Job, why aren't you walking with God anymore? What sin are you hiding in your life? Because you used to be wealthy, you're not anymore. Why is our wealth, health, and prosperity directly tied to our ability to follow God? It has never been so. If that's the case, then why was Jesus so 
so below the poverty line when he walked this earth. If anybody ever followed God wholly, it was Jesus, and yet he had no place to lay his head, and he used a rock for his pillow. So what is our definition of a successful Christian life? And what is the attitude that we take into our circumstances on a day in and day out basis? Well, frankly, this is the perception of most modern day American Christians, and it is the same as a pastor who is very well known, and I will not say his name, but he was quoted as saying this. Does God want us to be rich? When I hear the word rich, I think people say, well, he's preaching that everybody's going to be a millionaire. I don't think that that's it. Rather, he explains, I preach that anybody can improve their lives. I think God wants us to be prosperous. I think he wants us to be happy. To me, you indeed have to have money to pay your bills. I think God wants us to send our kids to college. I think He wants us to be a blessing to other people. But I I don't think that I'd say God wants us to be rich. It's all relative, isn't it? What if I told you it did not matter to God whether or not your kids got more educated? I don't mean to blow up our American paradigm of Christianity, but... To some level, I don't think God cares if your kids go to college, if they're just going to grow up to be complete heathens. So what is our definition? I want to help us tonight, and I simply want to look at a a, a few things, okay? I want to look, first of all, at spiritual attitudes that bring blessing. This is known as the Beatitudes, great blessing. So... Attitudes that bring spiritual blessing. And then I want to look secondly at attitudes that bring remorse. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Okay, number one, notice with me, verse number 20, the first attitude that brings blessing is this, spiritual bankruptcy. Let's be clear, Jesus is not saying you have to be poor to be a follower of His. And that's why in Matthew it says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, these are, these are parallel passages. They're harmonious. And so whether Luke omits it or not, Matthew makes clear this has a spiritual application, not a physical one. And man, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of preachers over time have used this out of context to say that God doesn't allow people to be rich. Well, somebody's going to have to talk to Job then because he was wealthy beyond belief. So, so it's not physical. And if you have physical riches, I, I need some friends, honestly. I could use some friends. But if you have physical riches, man, praise the Lord God has blessed you in that way. But for you regular Joes that I kind of find myself in that category, that doesn't mean you're not living for God, and that doesn't mean you are living for God. Because the application is spiritual. But here's a question. Do you recognize your spiritual poverty level? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? That is such a tremendous theological concept, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means this. You have to recognize your everyday need for God. I remember when I was in college, my freshman year I set out, I had been managing my money 
Since I was about 12 years old, my dad gave me a $100 bill, took me down to First Financial Bank, and we started a checking account. From that day on, my dad allowed me the privilege of operating my own checking account. He very rarely told me, no, I could not buy things. Uh, if it was my money, he would encourage me to save and do those things. And so I began working at an early age. So I had, I had some funds when I went to college. And I remember my dad in my checking account made sure that the first day I went to college, I had $2,500 that was just for me to be able to spend. And that was my money. And dad would help me out every week. I appreciate that. Praise the Lord for good dads like that. I remember leaving for college and I wanted to continue the same level of, or quality of life. You notice, uh, you know, when you're at dad's house, going out to Outback isn't all that big a deal because dad's paying for it. But when you're in college and the income is not justifying the outgo, something's got to give. I remember two and a half weeks into college. After I had visited Kohl's several times, after I never ate in the cafeteria for about the first three weeks of college, I remember my card getting declined. And I said, I cannot believe this has happened. What in the world? I know I have $2,500 in there. So I called my mom. Mom, you need to go down to First Financial Bank. You need to tell them we're a Wolfenbarger. You need to just put your foot down and you tell them that they've been loaning out my $2,500 and now I don't have enough money to spend. Some rich cattle baron has my money somewhere. And then I began to think, well, the guy at Taco Bell did keep my card a long time. Maybe he was taking a picture of my card in the back and he spent all my money. I could not figure it out. I got a call from dad. He said, uh, Andrew, you're $30 in the hole. Two and a half weeks. I had spent over $2,500 living like dad wanted me to live. And you know what I told him? This is your fault! No, 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 no. I did not do that because I would have been afraid my dad would have reached to the phone and grabbed me back to Texas just to beat me, put me back in California just to feel like I was alone. When that happened, I looked at dad and I said, Dad... I need some help. (laughs) I made a mistake. I spent all I had to spend because of my neglect. I spent all I had to spend because I did not understand what it took. I messed up. Dad, can you help me? You know what spiritual bankruptcy is? It's realizing the same about your sinful condition that I did about my fiscal one. It's realizing that you cannot go a day alone without God's help. It's realizing that the moment you begin to live life for you and the moment that you begin to live life in your own power, you will fail miserably and it won't be three seconds before you're overdrawn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Man, what it takes is some people just humble down. And why aren't the altars full every week? I'm not saying because of my preaching. I'm saying because if you're like me, I need more time here than I need anywhere. Because I need to be humble before God and beg for His help because I know me. 
If it's on my own, I will fail. So I need to bow a knee before an almighty God and say, God, without your help today, I know I'll be no better than the sinner. I'll know I'll be no better than the Pharisee. I know I'll be no better than the publican. Oh, God, please help me today. Live a life that would be pleasing for you. That's the attitude that brings spiritual blessing. And I'll tell you right now, I couldn't care less about physical blessing if God will allow me spiritual blessing. Oh, Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I will go out, but I will trust in God. Man, I want God's blessing on my life. Sure, it's, it's funny how we sing, count our many blessings, and our first response is this, well, I have a wonderful home. Well, I drive a great car. Oh, I have such a beautiful family, and they all love me, and they give me sugars every night before I go to bed. And we count every physical blessing all the while neglecting all the spiritual blessings He's given us. Friend, God lives in you. Listen to me. Almighty God lives in you. He abides in your heart. And He gives you the power that you need every single day. And yet our first thankfulness is we're glad we have a nice car. Oh, foolish we are, Christian. Oh, we need to recognize our spiritual need for God. Secondly, we need to recognize a spiritual hunger. A spiritual hunger. Verse number 21. The Bible says, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Here's a question, Christian. Are you hungry? Everybody can say, Amen, brother. It's about that time. Here, it, what if I asked you to create your perfect meal? Okay? I took the liberty of doing so tonight. I hope you don't mind. Here's my perfect meal, okay? If I could choose any restaurant, any, any item, I would walk in and already on the table would be El Phoenix's chips with Antonia's salsa. Antonio's salsa with El Phoenix's chips. I don't know how they inject air into their chips at El Phoenix, but somehow they figured out a way to do it. The salsa at uh, Antonio's is, in my opinion, the best around. I would follow it up with a salad from New York Hill restaurant. And you say, what in the world is that? Have you been to Thurber, Texas lately? (laughs) Probably not. Let me tell you this right now. It is the best ranch dressing in the world. No tomatoes. tomatoes. You could put ranch dressing on a skunk's tail and I would eat it if it's from that restaurant. It is so fantastic. I would would probably then want an appetizer as if I've already not filled myself. Because we all know we gorge ourselves on free chips and salsa. My, my, My third thing I would want is I'd want an appetizer and the riata... If you've ever been to the Riata, let me say, hear you say amen. Amen. Riata has a barbecued quail served with cheddar grits. I don't even know what the cheddar grits are, but the quail is great by itself. The grits are pretty good by themselves. But something happens when you put those together, and in the famous words of the theologian, it takes two to make a thing go right. That is what I'm talking about. 
And you say, I cannot believe you just ruined this sermon with a secular song reference. Sorry, I thought I was preaching to the teenagers there. I'm sorry, I, I, forgive me. I love at barbecue quail with those cheddar grits. It's fantastic. I'm a steak guy myself. I like a good steak. In my opinion, there's a top three. But for the purposes of this sermon, I will narrow it down to the New York Strip served at Lonesome Dove Bistro where they never freeze their meat. It's delivered fresh every day. You can hear the cows screaming in the back. The, the, the steak melts in your mouth. And, and people will say, oh, well, I like, you know, uh, uh, the one where they serve it on a 500-degree plate. Yeah, that's exactly how I want to eat my steak, on the bottom of an iron. As if I'm not already terribly clumsy around burning hot things, put one right in front of me as I'm trying to salivate on this steak. So I choose Lonesome Dove Bistro. And they say, this is an expensive meal. That's why it's all fantasy. Because I can't afford any of this, except maybe the salad at New York Hill. Yeah, let's say the blessed. Amen. And every good steak needs to be accompanied by a great side of potatoes. In some way, it needs potatoes. And so, I have chosen for my once-in-a-lifetime meal, many of you may not have ever eaten here, the jalapeno cheddar mashed potatoes at Fly-By-Night Steakhouse in Cleburne. If you've never been there, I encourage you to go. It's open like at midnight on uh, Sabbath day. I'm not exactly sure, but it has super obscure hours. But let me tell you this. The jalapeno cheddar mashed potatoes are phenomenal. The steak is actually in my top three as well. I encourage you to go. Maybe they'll support our golf tournament. Ask them. I don't know. And then I need some dessert. And I'm not a a huge dessert guy. I like dessert, but I don't ever, I'm not drawn to one particular dessert. So for dessert, I find myself back in Thurber, Texas. And you say at New York Hill, yeah, they put ranch dressing on it. No, 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 I'm just kidding. That's not true. They bring out a Sunday. I promise you six people could eat from. It, it is like a centerpiece in the middle of your table. I, I don't know how large it is. The last time we went, my sister was there. My mom was there. My dad was there. And, and the people next to us started laughing when they put it on our table. Because they thought it was too big for our family. And we proved them wrong. (laughs) It is fantastic. That's my meal. If I had one, one just fantasy meal, that would be it. Let me ask you again. Are you hungry? Now you are, actually. And the same hunger that we have over these temporary meals. You see... You go to Texas Day Brazil and gorge yourself for 30 minutes and you hurt for three days, but eventually you don't taste it anymore. It's always temporary. But these are talking about spiritual blessings and spiritual attitudes. So are you hungering for spiritual comfort? Are you hungering for spiritual nourishment from God Almighty? Because that's what it's talking about. 
We get around the table and we talk to our friends. We try out a new restaurant. Man, there's apparently a new little Mexican restaurant where the burger box used to be in Burleson. I've had 39 church members tell me about it. Like, Brother Andrew, you got to go there. That's great. I'm happy. Let me ask you. No problem with the guys going to burger box. Here's my question. How often do you talk about spiritual nourishment, though? Man, one new restaurant opens up in Burleson. It's like, oh, we finally have somewhere else to eat. Let me introduce you to the Word of God that never runs dry and has as much meat and as much milk and as much water as you could ever want. The Word of God will nourish your life. As the deer panteth for the water, the Bible says, as, the, uh, as so panteth my soul after thee, O God, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. That's what the psalmist says. Are we hungry? Or in the morning when we wake up, is our fleshly desire to eat breakfast more important than our spiritual desire to meet with God? Amen. Christian, we can never be a disciple unless we realize our spiritual poverty level. And we realize we need a spiritual hunger to grow in our relationship with God. Thirdly, we must have spiritual sorrow. Verse number 21 The Bible says this. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. What's unique about this is this is the only time laughter in Scripture is ever used as a spiritual joy. And, and most of the time it would say something like joy, a more, more permanent thing. But in this case, it uses laughter in the temporary sense of laughter. And I'll tell you one thing, I love being around people who can take a joke and can make a joke. I don't like being around people that can only make jokes and they're not very good at taking jokes. And I don't like being around people that just get all mad when somebody happens to make a joke about them. I like being around a group of funny people. That's why I'm the youth director. None of them are funny, but they laugh at my lame jokes. But I like funny people. Man, me and brother Jim Zorns have had some great times laughing together. Me and JT have great times laughing at Cody Sears. That's great. I love getting around people that know how to laugh. But when the Bible here says, Blessed are you when you shall weep. For one day you'll laugh. It's talking about a Christian's contentment to just giggle through life like everything's fine. And there is no solemn somberness about the reality our world is dying because of wickedness. And every single day we are inundated with wickedness. I cannot imagine being a child growing up today. Boy, can you imagine the stuff that our kids are having to deal with now. My kids are watching bubble guppies. It sounds like Britney Spears is singing in there. And I'm not being one of those fuddy-duddy old-time preachers. I'm asking Christians that are so surrounded by wickedness to not become content with it. To not be okay with it anymore. And what I've noticed is that when I start walking with God more intimately, I start recognizing not only my own wickedness, but the wickedness around me. 
Even as Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, and I am a man of unclean lips. Notice, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When you realize the holiness of your God, and you start walking with the highness of your God, you start realizing the depravity of this old sin-sick world. And it may bring a tear to your eye. But so many Christians are living life as if it's just day to day, one joke at a time. And we laugh at homosexuality. We laugh at adultery. It comes on our TV and we think it's funny. That is not a disciple. Because the same attitude that our Savior would have towards those sayings, we are to have. That is what a disciple is. Are we weeping? Does it hurt you when your relatives do things that you cannot allow your children to know about? Does it hurt you that when family reunions come about, you cannot attend the full length of them because you know at some point in time, something begins to happen that your children can no longer be around? Does that break your heart? Or is it just commonplace? It doesn't matter if you're living in first century Rome or if you're living in 21st century America. Wickedness has always been overwhelming in this world. Satan is very good at his craft. And everywhere he can put a sign, everywhere he can put a song, everywhere he can put something in your way that might cause you to stumble, there Satan is. Happened to me today as I was studying God's Word. You don't think Satan can throw something in your way just to make you trip up? Boy, the wickedness in this world. What a shame. And Christians go through life. (laughs) Oh, there's another another movie made about a homo. (laughs) Oh, another thing. You know, this movie is about uh, one guy who leaves his real life because he's having an affair with another wife and we think it's comical. I'm telling you right now, God looks at it and says, These seven things doth the Lord hate. Yea, they are an abomination. Look, just be careful. I'm not trying to rip your face. I'm not trying to be the angry preacher. I am angry, not at you. I'm angry at sin. And I'm angry that my daughters are going to have to grow up in this wicked world. Boy, islands are sounding better every day. Let's make our own Christian island. Then we might be viewed a little bit like a cult. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual hunger, spiritual sorrow, finally, spiritual alienation. Verse 22, the Bible says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate from you, or separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Oftentimes I have teenagers make tremendous life-changing decisions. And you may question the validity of those decisions, but I see the look in their eye. They're not fake. They're not fleeting. They mean it. But when they come back, things get hard. And I have teenagers say, Brother Andrew, I've made a decision to make better relationships and get rid of the old ones. What should I do? You know, according to this verse, you don't have to separate If you start living like you should, they will separate from you. 
And then you say, well, I just can't be an effective witness. If they're separating from you, your witness has been made. And your witness is this, that you will not put up with ungodliness and that you will not put up with people doing bad things around you. You may be a Jesus freak, but man, you sure do love Him. This Bible teaches multiple times. The fact of the matter is, spirit or, or, or Christian friends or, or Christians cannot be friends with this world. Because everything that the devil has set up in this world is diametrically opposed to everything that God asks us to stand for. If, if the world is Sodom and Gomorrah, we are to be Zion. We are to live for God. We are to stand higher. And when anybody comes to talk to us like you would go up to Jerusalem, they have to come up to your level to talk to you. And I'm not talking in a prideful sense. I'm saying start living a life that people will be forced to make a decision. They either get closer to God or further from you. There is no in-between. Spiritual alienation will always accompany, accompany a Christian who is making spirituality their first priority. The greatest compliment that a disciple can ever receive is when we begin to be treated like our Savior was. When people begin to view us and treat us in the same way they treated Jesus, we have arrived as a disciple. And the Bible says, rejoice in that day. You know what happened to the disciples when they departed from the Sanhedrin council? And they counted it a blessing and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They were rejoicing. Rejoice in your rejection, teenager. Oh, you don't want to do it. I understand. It's hard. You may not want to deal with the problems that come along with being the one that doesn't get invited, but rejoice in that day. For every time that you, you alienate yourself from a friend, you bring yourself in closer fellowship with Jesus Christ. What I've noticed about friends in this world is they're always temporary. And the Bible says there is a friend that sticketh closer than any brother. Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. But I've made friends, really good friends, mad. And our relationship was fractured from that point on. And it's amazing how every time I come to friends that I may have disappointed or I may have hurt and I say, I'm sorry. Those friends say, well, I'll forgive you, but I don't know if I can get over this. It's funny, every time I go to Jesus, He says, okay, you're forgiven. Never to bring it up again. Look, all I'm saying is your temporary friendships down here pale in comparison to the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ. These are incredibly difficult truths in the Bible. But I believe that every one of them have a spiritual application to me tonight. And I hope they have one to you.